her essay can show that overcoming racism was a significant achievement in their life that attests to their character, attests to their intrepidness. He says that's perfectly legitimate. What you can't do is just say, hey, I'm black, give me a plus, which is how the system works. So as you can imagine, and I find it really kind of depressing if I were in the admissions committee, the entire, every essay is now going to be, when I was four years old, the Ku Klux Klan burned the cross in front of my house, and... <laughs> Welcome to the New Flash Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Ricky Allpike, and joining me once again is my good friend, Mr. Jonathan Astro. John, we've got Norman Finkelstein. I can't believe he agreed to come back. I know, and it's, it's, it's embarrassing. I'm embarrassed, you know? Like, again, I, I asked, I said, would you come back? And he's like, yeah, sure. And I'm like, unbelievable. Really? Really? Well, <laughs> really? <laughs> but seriously, this, Norman Finkelstein is a truly brilliant man. You know, and uh, I just, I just think when when I think of integrity, I never got to tell him this, but when I think of integrity, and I think of consistency and values and principles, I think of I think of him. You know, so uh, yeah, I'd love to hear what people think of today's episode. Follow up mm-hmm. to our previous episode about his book. I'll burn that bridge when I get to it. Yes. Well, personally, I, you know, having uh, read read Norman's work and listened to him speak, and having him on the podcast last last time, it you know, it really showed me what the left used to be about, you know. And I sort of forgot that, you know, that it's about, you know, it's about real economic change for 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 the have-nots, I guess. And it's mm. not all about identity politics, kinks, and you know, <laughs> what's, what's what's happening in the bedroom, what's happening between your legs, you know. Mm. I mean, it's it's none of that bunch of stuff. really. Bunch of stuff's happening. It's a pleasure having Norman, and um, yeah, will he come back a third time? I don't know. I don't know. Let's roll the dice, see what happens. Well, we always tell you the truth here at the New Flesh Podcast, and the truth is that we need your help. We need you to leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to the show. We're also on YouTube, so please subscribe to our YouTube channel and leave a comment about a show you liked or perhaps one that you didn't. We do live in a democracy after all. And word of mouth is also a very powerful tool, so please please tell all of your friends. And finally, to our Uber fans, if you love what we do, you can send us a little cash via the Buy Me A Coffee platform any donation here is very much appreciated. And now on with the show. Return guest Norman Finkelstein is an American political scientist, activist, former professor and published author. He received his PhD from the Princeton University Politics Department in 1987. He's the author of many books uh, that have been translated into some 60 foreign editions. He is also known to most, though, through his work on the Israeli-Palestine conflict. But his latest book, uh, A Departure from that Topic, uh, as we have covered before, is titled I'll Burn That Bridge When I Get to It, Heretical Thoughts on Identity Politics, Cancel Culture and Academic Freedom. We're thrilled to have him back on the show. Norman, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So, Norman, I thought you'd like to know, I ordered your book uh, in hard copy uh, and it came with a free bookmark, uh, one that features a a land acknowledgement on it. It says, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we live today and pay our respects to their elders past and present. I thought you'd appreciate that. (laughs) Yes, words. (laughs) <laughs> uh, i thought that was so that was very fitting based on the first half of the of, of the book you know which is about 
uh, wokeness and, uh, you know, sort of empty gestures and, and things like that. It just seemed so perfect. I have some obscene comments on those land acknowledgements in the book. It's in the footnote. <laughs> I don't want to repeat them because you'll probably get canceled. Well, Norman, we get we actually have to do these land acknowledgements. It's becoming um, root, very routine. It so is, yeah. almost if you work at the government, every meeting they're doing, you know, it's happening increasingly. Um, and it's 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 a very um, odd form of lip service, I think, because it's not really helping anyone. I don't think. That's not the purpose to help anyone. It's just to prove how woke you are. Mm, well, I yeah. that. <laughs> you failed the test. It's not to have any material consequences. Listen, nobody forces you to come to a place that was formerly inhabited by. Just don't go. What is the point of coming and saying, I want to acknowledge? What is the point of that? Just don't come. Say it's native land. It was forcefully expropriated. Uh, I don't want to go there. You know, I don't. If somebody was um, evicted from their home and then a new person moves in who took their home, what am I And I'm asked to come over for a dinner. And I come over and I sit at the table and I say, I want to acknowledge that my best friend was evicted from this home last week. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't go to the dinner. Just don't go to the dinner. But but we have an interesting case here in Australia because we have a lot of white people that came here forcibly as convicts, and and there is you know that you can trace there are people living today that are descended from those convicts, so they too have to sit there and acknowledge the traditional owners of the land. Let's just cut this shit and get down to real work. <laughs> uh, absolutely. I agree. Christ. <laughs> well, in our previous interview, we covered the first half of your book, I'll Burn That Bridge When I Get To It. We spoke about wokeism, Barack Obama, Bernie Sanders. So today we wanted to focus more on the second half of the book, uh, The State of Academia and Council Culture. But before we do, we'd like to get your take on the recent Supreme Court ruling against race-based college admissions. Do you think this ruling is a positive move by the Supreme Court? Well, right now I'm writing something on it. So I've read the, the decision, the concurring opinions, and the dissents. I've read, it's 240 pages. I've read it two and a half times, trying to make sense of it. Uh, the problem with a lot of these uh, opinions is that there's not a real clarity on what's going on. So let's take this case of affirmative action. The original decision was in 1978. It was called the Bakke decision. And Alan Bakke was this white fellow, seemed to have been a hard worker, conscientious person. He applied to University of California, Davis, their medical school. He got rejected. Um, and he claimed he was rejected because other students with lesser, less impressive records were admitted. And that became the landmark case. It was called the Bakke case. The Supreme Court uh, weighs in on the case. And 
without going into all the fine details, which will bore you to death and have no bearing whatsoever on Australia, let me just get to the core point. The justice who wrote the opinion, his name was Justice Powell, he says there are four possible justifications for affirmative action. Justification number one, you might call it an aesthetic justification. That is, it's not a good look if everybody in the medical school class is white, which was the case at Davis. The medical school opened up and the first two years using conventional admissions criteria, no blacks were in the class. So one kind of justification is, as I said, you might call it aesthetic, cosmetic. That is to say, we need more black faces. There's something wrong here. Um, that's easy to understand. So for example, if you looked at the picture of the NATO leaders today in Vilnius, okay? Did you see the picture of them? I suppose you did because it was all over the place. Well, it was all men and one woman. All men and one woman. So at least the instinctive reaction of an American is not a good look. It's 2023. Not one head of state, except, excuse me, one head of state is a woman. One, uh, not a good look. Uh, Justice Powell said that's not a legitimate grounds for affirmative action. You can't discriminate against white people just because it's aesthetically unpleasing. Okay? So that's one down. Second possibility, which you're of course familiar with from Australia, affirmative action for compensatory reasons, namely historic injustice and the enduring effects of racism even today. So affirmative action to compensate for historical injustice and continued enduring racism in society today. Justice power rules no good because first of all, when does this historic justice begin? Are we going to go back 200 years? Are we going to go back 300 years? Are we going to go back 500 years? Number two, he says, many groups have been discriminated against in the United States. Irish when they came over, Italians when they came over, Jews when they came over, and currently, okay, so let's take So he says, it's all way too complicated. We can't work out an efficient system based on historic injustice. How about contemporary racism? He says that doesn't work either because groups who are discriminated against, it's constantly juggling. Jews suffered historic discrimination in the US, but they no longer do. When the Baki decision was delivered, Asians suffered oppression. And so 
part of the affirmative action program in Baki was to give Asians affirmative action. Nowadays, we use affirmative action to keep Asians out. In fact, if we used strict meritocratic criteria, strict meritocratic criteria, Harvard would be 43% Asian, more Asian than white, because their Asian scores are just in the stratosphere. So he says, what are we as a Supreme Court supposed to do? Meet every five years and decide which groups are oppressed and which groups are no longer oppressed? He said, that doesn't work. Nowadays, probably transgender persons would demand affirmative action because of historic oppression. So you have the, the problem, he says, we can't be every five years juggling oppressed versus oppressed oppressed versus no longer oppressed groups. A third possibility for justifying affirmative action, he said, is maybe it's the case that we need more black doctors graduating from medical school because black doctors are more likely to serve in underserved communities, which is just a fancy way of saying very few white doctors can be found in black communities. And maybe we should have affirmative action so there will be black doctors in black communities. Powell says no, he doesn't accept that because he says there's no evidence that just because you're black, you're going to serve in the black community. You might take your medical degree and say, hey, what the hell? I'm going to go where the money is, uh, plastic surgery in the white community. So he says no to that. And then there's a fourth possibility. And the fourth possibility is called diversity. Namely, it serves a positive educational purpose to having non-whites in the university environment. They stimulate interesting intellectual interactions. You learn how to get along with minorities in our society. So, uh, that's the fourth justification. Howell agreed to the fourth. He said that universities say it's useful to have um, diver a diverse student body. And he says, I'll defer to the universities. They think it's good. I'll go with it. So the first point to make is when we're talking about supreme, when we're talking about affirmative action from the point of view of the Supreme Court, it's not for comp historical compensation. It's not to compensate for current racism. It's not to have some non-white, you know, the Bennington uh, approach to uh, to uh, diversity. Just have black faces, throw them in, okay? not for that, and it's not to serve underserved communities, it's just for diversity. And the current opinion said diversity is too elusive, too vague a concept to justify discriminating against whites 
for Asians, because Asians too suffer from, quote unquote, suffer from affirmative action. And so what the affirmative, what the uh, Supreme Court did in its most recent decision a couple of weeks ago was to deny that diversity was a legitimate grounds to discriminate against individuals. And that's the ruling. So do you think that that universities will find a way around this ruling and, and, and still aim for that diversity? Justice um, Roberts, who wrote the decision, he's our chief justice, he gave them a back door. The back door was at the very end of his opinion, the last paragraph, the last two paragraphs. He said, well, if you could show if an individual, if an applicant, if an applicant in his or her essay, because every application includes a personal essay, if he or she can show that overcoming racism was a significant achievement in their life that attests to their character attests to their intrepidness, if you can show that racism was a factor in your life and that you were able to overcome it, he says that's perfectly legitimate. What you can't do is just say, hey, I'm black, give me a plus, which is how the system worked. It was called giving a plus an automatic plus because you were black. And he says, no, you can't get an automatic plus because you're black. Well, you can get a, you can get a extra consideration if you show that you overcame the adversity of being black. So as you can imagine, and I find it really kind of depressing if I were in the admissions committee, Every black person in his or her personal essay is now going to show how they overcome the adversity of being black. Instead of a personal essay, you know, telling, telling the um, admissions committee something special about yourself uh, that distinguishes you from everybody else, the entire every essay is now going to be when I was four years old, the Ku Klux Klan burnt the cross in front of my house. And... <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be like a really horrible dance-off of oppression. Yes. <laughs> but, but Norman, I'm, I've, I've heard stories of universities that now uh, have uh, graduation ceremonies that are segregated. So they have like a black... Uh, and I don't don't know how how widespread this is. I mean, maybe maybe it's 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 only a handful of universities. I'm not sure, but there seems to be this push to almost segregate the population. I mean, what you're talking about about having a diverse uh, university population because that's a good thing. People mixing that that that's sort of there on the one hand, but then on the on this other hand, you've got this sort of attempt at segregation, which which I find kind of a, a bit a bit strange. I wouldn't say there's an attempt at segregation. I think that for good reasons and bad, there is an overload of racial consciousness in the United States. Uh, 
a large part of it is, is historical. And now I would say a not insignificant part is being stoked by the Democratic Party in order to create this identity politics uh, party. And on the other side, the um, Republicans stoke the white identity politics. So part of it is real. I would say a significant part of it is real. I would say it manifests itself in different ways. If we can use the expression, part of it is in your psyche and it's very hard to extirpate, pull out from the roots. It's, you know, um, Robin DiAngelo, this freak who wrote this book, White Fragility, she thinks if you sit down in one of her sessions and she and everybody chants, interrupt racism, interrupt racism, interrupt racism, that that's going to, uh, like a seance, it's going to <laughs> levitating racism, you know completely lunatic. Uh, this is why the United States stands in the vanguard of culture. Um, so in the real world, it's very difficult to extirpate from your psyche. But then there's the other aspect, which is, can you extirpate it from the law? And can you extirpate it from institutions? And there I think you can enjoy more success but you have to always be honest with yourself. Everybody carries the psychological baggage with them. When a judge sees a black person, he sees a crook. Actually, when a judge sees a Jew, and most of the judges are Jewish, he also sees a crook. Cheap. <laughs> <laughs> difference is the judge doesn't think the Jewish crook belongs behind bars. He thinks the Jewish crook belongs behind a desk, uh, whereas the Jew or the black belongs behind bars. So what you might call, I use the expression, it sounds very sophisticated, and maybe it is, I use the expression interstitial racism. That is to say, it's not in the law, it's not in the statutes, but it's very real, it's there. Every teacher, every everyone in professional life walks in with their stereotypes, walks in with their prejudices. And the most you can do there is you just help people rather than, uh, rather than um, uh, fan those prejudices, does what he or she can to fight them. You know, to be conscious of the fact, all right, Norm, that's a pretty fucked up thought running through your head. You really shouldn't be thinking that, you know? Uh, you have that's uh, it's a uh, it's like interstitial sexism. What do you do? You know, a woman comes into a, a woman comes into your office. She has very large breasts. She has blonde hair, and mm. she's overexposed. And the thoughts run through your head. And then you have what to thoughts? engage. What do you what do you mean? What? <laughs> I don't understand, Norman. I, I... Right, well, did JFK, our president? he sleep with her in another life? You, know, that's... <laughs> you probably did. <laughs> you probably did, yeah. Um, so, uh, 
that that's baggage you carry with you and uh there's very little you can do about that but you can do things about things that i guess matter most which is to say to ensure legal equality legal oppor equal e opportunity and uh when your the nasty side of your psyche comes into play to fight it and i i don't think obviously the main the main battlefield is um economic equality to the extent that it's possible uh legal equality uh and that translates into you know basically the program that bernie sanders talked about and which any social democrat talks about uh jobs for all doubling the minimum wage medicare for all uh the uh, right to unionize the conventional demands of the historic left mm. Well, I've, I've got a real life example that, that I'd like to share that's sort of in this wheelhouse. Like the other day I rode my bike past a removalist van and this moving company was called Queer Move. And so presumably people are looking for tradespeople and services now that align with their genitals and sexual persuasion rather than competence or perhaps price. Do you think that, that that's this sort of, I mean... I, I mean, you've already sort of slammed my idea of a neo-segregationist society that's sort of, <laughs> you know, that I claim is happening at universities. But, I mean, do you think there's something going on here? First of all, you have to remember, you can't talk about universities en masse. Uh, there, are, there is a very deep class chasm between universities. So for the purposes of our discussion right now, this affirm affirmative action only affects 2% of black African-Americans in college, 2%, basically the elite schools. So Robert's decision will have 98% zero impact on African-Americans, okay? That's the first point. The second point is where I teach, I teach until last semester I taught uh, in a public college, mostly first immigrant, first generation immigrant students or African Americans, a uh, beautiful atmosphere. Everybody got along. There was no self-conscious necessity to be diverse. Diversity is the name of the game if you're not part of the top 20%. It's a relatively, there are gradations, I won't deny it, but it's a relatively homogeneous 80% economically now. And they live together, they do live together in the most literal sense. You'll have four people, one black, one white, one gay, one whatever, in the same uh, apartment. And there's no self-consciousness like, wow, look at me, look how woke I am. No, that's the reality for a large part of the younger generation. So uh, classes are actually, I have to say, they're delightful. There's a real heterogeneity. There's a real solidarity. And there's none of this idiotic woke pretense. Nobody is, you know, conscious of we have to maintain 
the right proportion and balance among different groups. It never even crosses anybody's mind. About that, I'm absolutely certain. It never crosses anybody's mind. It's in the elite colleges. I, I taught maybe in the last three years, I taught maybe 300 students. Of the 300, only two, two, raised any issue of pronouns with me. And one of the two, he never finished my class. He took it twice and didn't get a grade twice. Um, so one, really, technically, one of 300. It just never comes up. Whereas when you go to the graduate programs or the elite undergraduate schools, uh, seminars begin with naming your pronouns. Mm. It's completely freaky. These are sick people. Too much time in their hands. No, I see, I'm serious. <laughs> These are just not issues for most people. If uh, somebody is in his or her sexual orientation different, the class is very tolerant, very generous, very kind. Um, so I don't see even, I don't even see a problem. I don't see a problem. It's all created by these freaky, you know, rich kids, woke people for whom it's an industry, it's a business. Well, maybe you don't see a problem because you're cis, het, and uh, white, uh, Norman. That's another possibility. But um, uh, I have a two-part question uh, that I would like to ask you. Uh, I want to just stress, I don't want there to be a misunderstanding here because I have to be careful. I get a lot of email on this subject. Uh, there's no question that trans persons suffer a lot of difficulties in our society. Uh, housing, yes, of course. No one wants to rent to a trans person. Uh, jobs, yes, it's a problem. I don't, I don't want to deny that. I'm just talking about the popular cultures, at least in urban areas. I, I can't tell you about some town in Alabama. I can't. I can't speak for it. But in urban areas... Uh, there's a very high level of tolerance, but not a kind of performative tolerance. It's a tolerance of, you know what, none of us have a future. All of our lives are screwed up. We're not going anywhere. And it was that kind of solidarity. And it's a, a very, for me, of course, I wish my students were going somewhere, uh, but it's a very uh, wonderful thing to observe. Uh, it really does, it gives you hope for the future about the possibility of people getting along in a, in a respectful, humane world. Well, Norman, the, the question I have is, because you brought up your teaching, and well, firstly, I'm, I'm honestly overjoyed to discover that you are starting a podcast. I think this is the it possibly the biggest no-brainer uh, out there from from my perspective. Now you're a humble guy, so I know you're going to say my podcast or me as a no-brainer. <laughs> the pod, the fact that you're doing a podcast is an is a no-brainer. Uh, now you're a humble guy because you know you hold yourself to really high standards, like uh, Mr. Chomsky himself. So you're going to give me some stuff about how you're not you know not that good or whatever. But that's ridiculous. Like there is an incredible hunger for for what you have to say out there and that that is proven and i can't i can't wait to see what you do with this but the first part i, I want you to tell us about the about about the podcast what you're thinking there but this but you have to address the teaching contract first 
why in heavens are you not still teaching? Well, at this point, one doesn't have to investigate political motives. I'm too old, you know. Uh, for the kind of teaching I do, it's called adjunct teaching. Adjunct just means you're hired from semester to semester. And mostly they hire, you know, graduate students to do adjunct teaching. So I'm, uh, I'm finished. Am I happy about that? Actually, not really. Uh, my teaching career was cut short. I, I didn't get my degree until I was 1987, until I was 30, until I was, yeah, until I was 34, uh, I didn't get my degree. 1987, yeah, I was 34, uh, and it was all over when I was 53. So I didn't even teach 20 years, uh, and uh, I was not happy about that. You know, not for selfish reasons. Uh, I'll be honest with you. I, I think I, I think the record shows I'm an effective teacher. I'm a compassionate teacher. I'm a challenging teacher, and I thought people would have benefited from me. Now, of course, I love teaching, but that wasn't my first um, feeling. My first feeling was I was always calculating, calculating. So I would say, okay, I taught about roughly 150 students a year. Under normal circumstances, I would have taught until 70. So 53, which is when I was cut short, to 70 is about 17 years. Then I would multiply 17 times 150 to see how many students I missed out on. You know, that, that to me was the, the saddest part. Of course, I'd love to be in class and I'd love to be among my students. But the saddest part was, um, I think I can say with a certain amount of confidence that I changed the lives of many of my students. I got very, very uh, engaged in wanting to see them succeed. So um, I had an impact and I, so I was cut short. Uh, at this point, I, I would say, well, I cannot really say because I, there are always things I say which might get me in trouble. And then when this new book came out, I, I wouldn't be surprised, seriously, one of Obama's people uh, called up the president and said, did you see what that professor wrote about our uh, President Obama? And then they didn't renew my contract. It's uh, Norman, this is absolutely outrageous, Norman. This, you know, you, you, there's an old action movie called Under Siege. You, I don't know, you're a very busy man. I don't know you would have seen this movie. It's a Steven Seagal movie and he's like a cook on, on a I ship, know. right? But I'm explaining oh, it to you. I'm explaining the story. It's good. He's a cook on a ship, but secretly he's like a SEAL team like legend, and he's so good that he's just the cook. He, uh, the cook. And they had you, you. This was under siege. They had an incredible uh, mind. Uh, uh, um, uh, from what I I can gather, a brilliant teacher um, doing, uh, you know, honest challenging work with these students and they're going to piss it away what because you wrote mean things about obama i said nasty things about a lot of people <laughs> so, <Not> just obama. <laughs> um look the truth be told i was never cut out for academia because of my temperament 
it, it didn't work. It's like, if you ever read Karl Marx's Capital, which I talk about in those last two chapters, he had the nastiest things to say about all of his contemporary economists. I mean, he was just totally vicious. So how long would, how long would Karl have lasted in academia, you know? He'd be telling the students, you know that professor down the hall, he's a fucking idiot. And that one is a, a bourgeois cretin. And that one is... is <laughs> so Carl wasn't cut out for academia either. You have to have a certain temperament. Um, how did Chomsky survive? They didn't really care because he was a genius. So they said, let him say whatever he wants. We just, just keep him in our faculty. <laughs> But uh, with me, I wasn't a genius, so I couldn't say whatever I wanted, but I said whatever I wanted. And guess what? <laughs> I was unemployed most of my life. <laughs> but, you've, but you've started this new podcast. It started as a town hall uh, uh, format, and you're thinking of continuing on? I don't know yet. You know, I, I, I do have a very, very stringent standard for myself. And believe me, I'm tormented about how to make this thing work I want it to be. I want it to be quality. I care about it. I'm a, I'm a very old-fashioned. The only podcaster who I think there are few. Okay, there are a few. The one who I respect the most from my country uh, is Brianna Joy Gray. Do you mm. know her? Yes. Yes. She's. She. I. I. Your. Your uh, interactions with her are, are legendary. I, I. I like her. She's very smart. She works hard. She's always prepared. And um, she also has this very sunny disposition. So even when we're talking about serious matters, there's always a smile, a laugh. And um, I like that. Uh, I like that disposition. I don't think Lennon would have done well on podcast. He was a little too, <laughs> he was a little too dour. Uh, Trotsky was a little too aloof. I think Rosa Luxemburg might have been okay on a podcast. Uh, you have to have a certain temperament, and um, we'll see whether it works for me. I, I don't know. I've never done it before. Um, and, of course, I'm worried about the age factor. Why do you keep saying that, Norman? This, is, this comes up a lot. Age comes up with you a lot. I don't, I don't get it. Yes. Look, we have to be, we have to be um, honest about these things. The podcast world is a very young world. It's in the the oldest. The oldest is the low forties, like a Glenn Greenwald, and it's mostly twenties and thirties. It's a uh, it's a very youthful um, universe. The podcasts. So, as you will notice, and I don't know if you have noticed, Professor Chomsky is always available always available but you'll see he's very rare on rarely on those podcasts because he's too old they want a lively youthful presence on those programs uh i don't i i think i'm speaking uh i'm, I'm speaking correctly on this point because i've watched it especially because i don't want to be hard on the younger generation but the younger generation 
I know it's going to sound uh, harsh, so young people forgive me, but they have very little sense of history and they have very little interest in history. You know, when I was growing up way back when, if I met somebody, and you could meet people uh, who, who fought in the Spanish Civil War, somebody who uh, went to a Paul Robeson concert, somebody who knew W.E.B. Du Bois, we were very excited, you know, to talk to them, to ask them questions. What was it like? What was it like? What was it like? But we young people nowadays, let's say, asking me, what was it like during the war in Vietnam, those demonstrations and so forth? What was it like, the civil rights movement? No interest at all, none. Only the kind of chic glamour, like being in the Black Panthers, who actually had exactly zero real impact on the world. They were a fashion statement. Uh, that they'll show some interest in. But actual people who were engaged in real struggle, uh, there's no interest. And that's part of the reason they're not, they are not interested in old people. I don't know, Norman. Norman, uh, look, there's not a lot that I can challenge you on because you're so, uh, you know, across many, the portfolios. This is one area where I got to say I, I think I think you're wrong uh, because your videos, in particular, online go crazy. There is a deep thirst for your particular. The, the history you bring, the experience you have, the knowledge you have, and the fact that you were sidelined for so long, it's all just sitting there waiting to be, to, to, to leap forth and, and to, to save us from this, this nightmare we're in on the left, which where we're just living in this, this, this horrible identity politics thing. And, and, you know, it was like the feeling I got when I read your book, I was just like, Norman Finkelstein is here to save us. He's coming down, like this is this is an unlikely figure from the left, uh, from the proper left, has has returned to, you know, this is the mission. So, what what do you think of my proposal, well, I've, John? I've, we we've actually got actual stats on this. One of our most successful episodes in terms of downloads and listenership is the first appearance of of Norman on our show a couple of months ago. Absolutely. So, I mean, that's I mean, we're just a humble humble little podcast from Australia, and still. You know, people tuned in. Well, we'll see. I, I did notice that there was a lot of anticipation that everybody would hate the book. I got such nasty pre-publication commentary and quite a large number of people exhorted me not to publish the book. However, I retained a secret confidence that although my age court, cohort would be revolted by its content, young people would be able to handle what I have to say and wouldn't go ballistic. And I have to say, or I would say, on that score, I felt redeemed. So, for example, one second, let's see if I can find it. So, I got an email yesterday from 
uh, one of my correspondents. He's a young man, and he writes as follows. I'm upset I missed your talk in Washington with Brianna Joy Gray. I would have been there without fail if I didn't happen to be out of town. My best friend, Adrian, attended with his sister, which I was happy about. It's funny. Adrian's younger sister bought him a copy of your book for his birthday. He asked for it, otherwise she wouldn't have ever come across the book. She also bought a separate copy for herself at the time because she was intrigued. Turns out she devoured the book faster than Adrian. We were all at the bar last night talking and the conversation turned to Biden approving those cluster bombs. At some point, Adrian's younger sister, Sarah, busted out your book from her purse and started reading out some passages that she had underlined, which were somewhat related to the topic. She was so excited, so into your book, it was just wonderful to see. It reminded me of exactly what you've said before, that the only people who have repudiated your book with disgust have been adults and that no young person has ever had a problem with it. I think what happened last night at the bar was an additional experience to adduce to your point. And that's what I hoped would happen. My ex-publisher, I said to him, I'm, I'm pitching the book to young people. I'm an old man now. I want to talk a little bit about what the left used to stand for, what the left used to mean. And that this thing called the left now uh, has nothing to do with the left as I understood it growing up. And in fact, I've since come to the conclusion that it's again green. It's just a very right wing gangrene, uh, this, this pathological growth, but it has nothing to do with the left. I, I, I don't know if you've followed some of my recent commentary. But I was reading a very good book. It's called Woke is Not Left, or Left is Not Woke. I can't remember which it is. By a very good scholar named Susan Neiman. And a significant part of the book is devoted to analyzing this German uh, legal scholar named Carl Schmidt. Have you guys heard of Carl Schmidt? Uh, only the name, I think, yeah. around the periphery of these discussions. That's all. Okay, so... Carl Schmidt joined the Nazi party in 1933. He was a stalwart of the Nazi party. And even after World War II, he did not repudiate his allegiance to the Nazis. And nonetheless, his books on law are now part of the woke canon. It's just completely freakish. It's freakish. And Susan Neiman, the author of that book I mentioned to you a moment ago, she said at one point that the woke have been colonized by a row of right-wing ideologies. And so whereas when I wrote the book, I staked out the claim that wokeness was not part of the historic left, the more I gave 
thought to it, and the more I read after the book's publication, the more I became convinced that it's a right-wing ideology. It's a gangrene on the left, the historic left. And I think young people uh, were much more willing to entertain that proposition, as well as much more willing to entertain that certain of the certitudes of my generation, certain of them, uh, can be revisited without the uh, without the sky caving in. That you can think about the question of abortion, or you can think about the question of affirmative action, which in my generation were litmus tests, uh, and not necessarily coming out on any particular side, but recognizing there are arguments on both sides. We have to think it through. And there wasn't this kind of regimented, uh, as I said, litmus test. I was confident that I could pull that off. My publisher, I said, I remember it was my last conversation with him, my former publisher, who I like. I don't want to say any, I was never saying a negative word about him. But I said he hated the book. And I said to him, uh, I'm trying to reach young people. Uh, new generation and he said to me I don't think you'll succeed I think he was wrong on that he was wrong on that count uh, it's not a big seller but on the other hand it hasn't evoked a hostile reaction either I remember I don't know how many how much of the book you read it's a large book so you're excused to not reading the whole thing but there are a lot of passages where I use this kind of black lingo to mock these woke uh, assholes. You've even got show. you've got it in the title, Norman. It's Norman X. Finkelstein. Yeah, yeah. Right? But I had uh, there are some passages where I use this black lingo. Ebonics. Uh, in order to, you know, I, it's not really ebonics because. The way I wrote it, no human being talks like that. I was just <laughs> mocking it. I was mocking, you know, white woke people who want to show how down with the hood they are. And everybody said, take it out, take it out. You're going to get yourself in so much trouble. Guess what? <laughs> the book is coming out in six months. Nobody even commented on it. I, there's not been one comment about those passages. Not one. But just to say young people, they're a little bit more laid back. They don't get so hot under the collar. So, uh, yeah, so in that respect, I'm uh, satisfied with the response. Well, uh, perhaps we should take a, a, a turn into academic freedom uh, just for a bit because that's what the, what the second part of the book is all about. Uh, we could talk about what, what academic freedom is, perhaps too too broad, there's a quote from your book that really struck me when I was rereading it this week, and it's from a section where you're talking about teaching difficult themes to students, uh, and uh, and you you cite a couple of examples where the students became triggered is probably the word I would use for, for it. So here's your quote: You say, "Truth be told, it's just not humanly possible to teach some material." Unquote. Who's <laughs> that? So are there topics or texts that, that just can't be taught? I gave, I gave some examples. Now, you try to teach them. <laughs> so, for example, 
There's a famous book. It was written in the 1980s, no, 70s, actually 60s. <laughs> it's called White Over Black. Okay, and the author was Winthrop Jordan. And it won the Pulitzer Prize, and it's a very dense text, okay? So he begins by talking about the fact that there was an unfortunate historical coincidence. The historical coincidence was when white people came to Africa, they not only discovered Africans, they discovered gorillas. And so there was a natural connection made between the two simultaneous discoveries. Then he says, when they start bringing slaves over to um, North America, they notice that uh, African-American young people had very large, what's the word they use? Um, I can't remember. Do you have that page in my book? Oh. Uh... You said subjects you can teach. Yes, this isn't the section where you we, where it, it it talks about members, <laughs> right? <laughs> that, yeah. that does come up. Okay, I think I found it. Sorry, the passage from the book is: Negro men sported large propagators and members of extraordinary greatness. I'm calling from the doctor. <laughs> so, <laughs> you try to teach that in an African American. <laughs> I, I remember, I remember the head, uh, when you're an adjunct, you have to teach anything that comes your way. You know, the last minute somebody drops out, and the, professor, and the department chair says, ah, oh, you can teach. I said, no, I never read a book in the talk. That's okay. All you have to do is stay one class ahead of the uh, students. Okay. So I once taught African-American studies, and I, I picked up Winston Jordan's book because I read it when I was in college. And um, I remember I, I was tormented as to whether I'm going to teach these particular passages in the book. And I called up Carol Chomsky, Noam Chomsky's wife. She was a close friend of mine, his first wife. She, she passed from cancer. And I said to her, how am I going to teach these? <laughs> how am I going to teach these passages? She says, skip them. <laughs> she, was very, she was a very wise woman. So I skipped them. But it's interesting, though, not not all text you have to, it, like propagators uh, is one thing, but, you know, you could be, and I, and I believe you when you say that, that you know, uh, the young people might be more laid back or perhaps the wokeness problem in, amongst young people you've taught isn't as prevalent as, as maybe some people go on about. But at the same time, I, I feel like you, you would just have to read Jane Eyre or something and someone would be like, oh... <laughs> That is so weird. You know why? You're not going to believe it. Someone's just getting up out of his chair. After 50 years, I'm rereading Jane Eyre. Well, there you go. <laughs> that is so weird. Yeah. But so, but that's got that's got problematic stuff all the way through it. Like you know, it's um. No, no, no. She's hot. Shady. She's hot for this guy. Uh, he's got his no, wife, no, his no, wife no. of color it's locked up very, upstairs. It's No, it's very, as we would say, tasteful. 
no propagators. No, no. I'm, I'm rereading it. I'm almost finished. And uh, Rochester's member has not, so to speak, come up yet. So, no, 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 no. But Norman, if you, if you couch that book in the right context, could you maybe mention it? You know, I mean, if you provided a context, historical, the other one, you mean. yeah, not not Jane Eyre. I'm talking about the other one. And there's no way I could do it with a straight face. There's no. I would start <laughs> making jokes, and I'd probably say, make a joke, get the point across, and then move on. But to teach it in a kind of, so to speak, professorial tone, no, doesn't work. Forget it. You know, you have to be. Um, uh, some things you have to just be realistic about. I, uh, I think it's impossible, as I say in the book. I think it's impossible to teach this whole race and IQ issue in class. It's just too painful, hurtful. It's a very hard thing to have to deal with, especially when, as I say, um, the evidence is not unequivocal. And then what do you do? I, I can't do it. Uh, I, I'm, I'm being perfectly honest about that. Most topics I can deal with, I would say probably nowadays, I would have a lot of problems if the issue of transgenderism came up. I would have a lot of problems teaching, especially if they're transgender uh, people in the class. I, I don't think it's an easy topic to teach, not just because of the lunatics in the class, uh, but because it's just a very, it's a hard topic. I, I have to, I have to acknowledge that. So I don't think there are a large number of topics that fall under that umbrella of unteachable, but I think there are some. But shouldn't higher education be? And I am being slightly naive here, uh, but shouldn't shouldn't higher education be life changing? Isn't the point that we go and get our world rocked by ideas? As I said in the book, um, life would be very simple if all we had to do was apply principles. But as Professor Chomsky told me maybe forty years ago, that in real life. Principles often clash. And I, he gave me an example I never forgot. He said, if your daughter is in the bedroom and somebody knocks on your door, turns out to be a rapist, and he says, is your daughter at home? Well, you're not supposed to lie. But there are moments when you lie. That real-life principles come into conflict. Now, in the case of teaching, your first commitment is, of course, to truth, to trying to find it, trying to achieve it, never being fully certain that you have achieved it. But there is a, there is a second principle. That is to create an environment in the classroom such that a student can most effectively learn. And there are some topics that touch so close to home that I can understand 
that those topics come into conflict with the principle of trying to find truth. And we try as much as possible to isolate that number of topics, but also to recognize that they exist. And I don't think it's a big deal. Um, I mentioned a few examples, but in general, I said, we're going to adhere to the principle of come what may, and however painful it might be, we're going to pursue the truth. But I will grant that there are points where that's not workable. Because if you paralyze a student's mind, if you paralyze a student's mind, then you're defeating the whole purpose of teaching. Well, you have a chapter in your book with a great heading, which is, Do Pervs, Pinkos, Ravers, and Rebel Rousers Have a Right to Teach? Can, can you run us through some of your thoughts around this question? In general, principle of academic freedom is, in the classroom, you are involved in the search for truth, and you should not take or exhort a particular point of view. You should expose students to the different points of view and let them decide for themselves where truth is. However, when you are out in the public, or the public square, as it's sometimes called, you are allowed to offend any and every other person, and you're allowed to hold whatever beliefs you might um, have. And that, that principle uh, has constantly arisen, or the, the trying to realize that principle has constantly created very contentious situations in academia. So let's give a couple of examples. We'll start with the case of Bertrand Russell. So Bertrand Russell was probably the most distinguished, one of the most distinguished minds of the 20th century. I don't think there is any question about that. And he was invited to teach at City College uh, in New York. He was living in the United States during World War II. And for City College, which is where I teach, it's uh, a public university, it was called, quote, the education coup of the century. And they would manage to get Bertrand Russell on their faculty. Well, Russell was scheduled to teach logic, philosophy, and mathematics. And then it came to be known, because um, Russell had written a very famous book, quite good book, by the way, called Marriage and Morals. And in that book, he said many things which uh, offended religious sensibilities. 
For example, he said that he thought uh, premarital cohabitation was a good thing. He said that it's a nature of men to be promiscuous. Uh, he said that parents and children should see each other naked. He said that homosexuality should not be condemned. So a whole series of statements which in the year when he was teaching, 1940, were considered outrageous. Actually, most of those statements would have been considered outrageous well into the 1980s in our society. And then a move was afoot to deny him the appointment. And Russell's response was, in class, I will stick to what I'm asked to teach, what I'm being paid to teach. But I have no obligation outside class to refrain from making the statements I've made in print. And eventually he lost the case and he was denied his appointment. And in the book, many people are surprised. I take a very, I take a, I have an ambivalent feeling about the whole issue. Because in principle, Russell is correct. However, it's also the case that Russell did command a huge amount of moral authority. There's no question about that. So let's say he's written a book saying then his view, incest and uh, pedophilia should be legalized. There's nothing wrong with them. Instead of homosexuality and premarital cohabitation, he said, incest and pedophilia. Now, if he commands a lot of moral authority and he comes to teach, is the university giving an imprimatur to his teachings outside the classroom? such that it could very likely influence his students to uh, to engage in those taboos. Uh, I think there's a question there. I, I think there's a question there. Uh, the university is, in some respect, as I quote somebody in the book, who I thought was a very shrewd guy, he was a school administrator. He was the sharpest of all the commentators in the case. He says that you can't deny that when you hire a professor to teach, he said you can't segregate the person from his profession. That when you hire somebody, you are transmitting a message to the students that this person is, in some respect, a role model 
and you are when you hire that person in some respect giving that person a stamp of approval i think as a professor i think that's true students for students their professors are often their surrogate parents because they're now for the first time away from home and there is a tendency to look with a certain amount of deference to a professor such that um, you do command a certain amount of authority and that authority can significantly influence certain choices students will make at that moment or in life. And the example I gave, I think, poses problems. Um, well, and it's, in, a, it's interesting, Norman, because we're in a different uh, era now from, from Bertrand Russell's time. In fact, uh, you know, you think about it, let's be frank, there's, there's plenty of left-wing academics out there, well, most of uh, uh, people are on the left, I, I would imagine, would be in, in, in academics, but uh, some of these people are studying and, and celebrating sexual perversion of all kinds, um, fetishes, sex work, you name it. I'm sure someone's written a paper on gooning and why gooning is great or something like that, and I find it difficult to believe that they would suffer any negative consequences for, for teaching students at all. I think they would be um, celebrated and allowed to keep their jobs. Whereas it just seems, uh, is this is one of those things where it's very, because you've, you've been, you've brought a principled uh, vision to that Bertrand Russell thing. But again, it's too principled because now it's selective, I would say, because you can just say, oh, well, you know, we don't want, we don't want uh, Norman Finkelstein because, you know, yeah, he's mean to Obama or whatever. And, but then you, you, you would have a whole range of people in the humanities who are, who, who um, are doing um, sort of um, advocating for things that, uh, you know, might be a little fringe, shall we say. I, I totally agree with that. I was just homing in on one case where I found myself not, um, not as supportive of Russell as I thought I would be. And um, I thought that his defenders were completely dishonest. People like John Dewey, the great American philosopher, he would say, oh, Bertrand Russell would never advocate any of those things. He was a gentleman in this and that. No, he did advocate those things. He did, you're not being honest. And even Russell was not being entirely honest, I think, because he kept saying, I'm just hired to teach philosophy, logic, and, uh, and mathematics. But then the question remains unanswered. What if he had been hired to teach the subject matter of marriage and morals? where he says all of these, by that era's time, outrageous things about premarital sex, promiscuity, homosexuality, and so forth, should he have been allowed to teach that subject matter? And I didn't feel he honestly engaged that question because he said, it doesn't come up. I'm just 
going to teach or them hired to teach. But he didn't really address the question, well, what if City College also asked him to teach a course on marriage and morals? Should he have the right to teach it? Uh, that was one example. I, I looked at uh, a few examples. I looked at the, what I took to be the interesting case of Karl Marx, which is there's a standard in academia called civility. And civility basically means you have to be cordial to your colleagues and you have to be cordial to the discipline at large, in the writ large. Okay, so I took, I looked at a couple of cases. I mentioned Marx, I'll get to him in a moment. Uh, the first case I looked at was Angela Davis. The, um, at that point in her life, she was a militant of the left. Um, and the issue of the IQ test came up at that point. It's a recurring theme in uh, Western academia uh, comes up over and over again. Um, so at that point, it was a Harvard, uh, a Berkeley professor, Arthur Jensen, who had published a famous article in Harvard Education Review, saying that black people, the usual thing, they're intellectually inferior to white people, blah, 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 blah. And Angela Davis had some very unkind words for Arthur Jensen. Uh, Angela Davis, she went to the Sorbonne, she studied with Adorno at the Free University in Germany. She was teaching Kant at the age of 22 at the UCLA philosophy department. And here along comes Arthur Jensen, who says that her IQ is roughly that of a chimpanzee. Now, there's a serious question here. Is she obliged to be cordial to him? Is she obliged to respect him? Is she obliged to respect his quote-unquote search for truth? Is she obliged to respect his findings? Quote-unquote, his findings. Is she obliged? I concluded no. I don't think she's obliged. Uh, so, uh, that breaches the standard of civility. And then the question of Marx came up. And as I mentioned already earlier, Marx was absolutely brutal in his uh, assessment of his contemporaries. He uses the most juvenile, vicious epithets in attacking them, okay? Now, nobody, no serious person disputes that Marx was a giant mind, that Das Kapital in the history of economic thought was a real achievement. And then the question arises, Karl Marx was not civil. There's no question about that. Should he have been allowed to teach? Now, no serious person will dispute that Karl Marx occupies 
a very significant place in the history of Western ideas. He may not like his ideas, but the fact that he occupies a very significant place is not contested. So if we use the standard of civility, that would mean he shouldn't be eligible for a teaching position at a university. And as I said to in the book, I think that's the reductio ad absurdum of the principle of civility. If you're going to say Karl Marx can't teach in a university because he's nasty to his colleagues. And that, as you can imagine, formed the background for my own case. Because it was formally contended. I don't believe it was the real issue, but it was formally contended that I was denied tenure because I was uncivil, that I treated, I was very nasty to people on a range of fields who I thought was, were hucksters, hoaxers, charlatans, uh, and um, uh, apologists for uh, serious human rights crimes. And so the issue became, as I said, I don't think that was the real issue, but it became an, er an area of uh, contestation whether, given my penchant for colorful language in describing those who I consider to be apologists for human rights crimes of a significant magnitude, whether I should be denied tenure because I lacked civility. When I began work on the conclusion to that chapter, I took these three very thick folders off my bookshelf of um, my tenure case. And I started to thumb through them. My heart sank. And I said, I'm not going to do this. Number one, because it seems so petty. He said, she said, I didn't want to, I didn't want to lower the bar on the book. I felt I maintained a high standard during the book and writing the book. And I wasn't going to end on this note of what I felt to be pettiness. And secondly, I thought, why would anyone believe me? I'm obviously an interested party. So why would anyone believe anything I have to say? If I say I was defamed, if I say I was, um, I was uh, libeled, all sorts of threats were made against my person. Uh, I, I, I didn't want to get in, it was too lurid. It was too petty. And so how I finally resolved to handle it, I handled it with two pages. Originally, it was going to be my tenure story. And then I handled it in two pages. I simply printed the letter denying me tenure. And I printed Raoul Hilberg, who was at the time the greatest living authority in the Nazi Holocaust his opinion and 
his opinion, since I have the book in front of me, it's not hard to quote because it's the last uh, pages in the book. I'll just read the last paragraph. Um, he, it's a very long statement by him. The last paragraph reads, However, leaving aside the question of style, and here I agree that it's not my style either, meaning how I engage my colleagues. The substance of the matter is most important here, particularly because Finkelstein, when he published this book, namely The Holocaust Industry, he was alone. It takes an enormous amount of academic courage to speak the truth when no one else is out there to support him. And so I think that given this acuity of vision and analytical power, demonstrating that the Swiss banks did not owe the money that even though survivors were beneficiaries of the funds that were distributed, they came, when all is said and done, from places that were not obligated to pay the money. That takes a great amount of courage in and of itself. So I would say that his place in the whole history of writing history is assured, and that those who in the end are proven right, triumph. And he will be among those who will have triumph, albeit, it seems, at great cost. Uh, well, he's referring to a large part of the uh, Holocaust industry was devoted to showing that all of these claims about the Swiss banks having stolen all the money of Holocaust victims during World War II, that was all sheer nonsense. I went to the record, there was no evidence for it, and it was proven not to be based on any evidence. And I came under a lot of attack for that because I said all these Jewish organizations, they're a gang of crooks, they're ghouls and grave robbers who are profiting off the martyrs of the Nazi Holocaust. And that was very pointed on that subject. So uh, that's how I ended the book. No details about that squalid and sordid affair called my tenure year. And um, like Karl Marx, I think I had a right to teach. Not in the level of Marx. Marx was a, one of those giants in the history of human thought. I'm not, but that's okay. Each of us has something to contribute to making the world a better place. Some on world historic terms and some on modest, but nonetheless substantive terms. You could change a student's life. You know, for me, the most precious people in the world are two precious professions great school teachers and librarians great school teachers and librarians 
Now, of course, a librarian now is something very different than it was back in the day, um, because nobody even reads in the library anymore. They just come to libraries to use the computers. But there was, back in the day, a librarian opening the world of books and ideas to a child, or a grade school teacher who you'll never forget. I can name every one of my grade school teachers with absolute ease. And I can, I mean, to the point that my memory of sixth grade, a friend of mine recently passed away. He was my best friend in sixth grade. And before he passed, I said, Mark, do you remember this? Mark, do you remember that? 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 I can every detail I remember of sixth grade. And uh, so, okay, not a world historic intervention by this rather humble person, but you could make a difference. And um, I think I had the right to teach. That's it. Well, Norman, we want to thank you uh, for for your time today. I know you've got to got to get get uh, get into some work ne next, but um, we'll just thank you for, for 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 your time today on the podcast. It's been an absolute delight. And and if you need any help, uh, technical help with your own podcast, feel free to reach out to to John and I. I have I have three nice young men who are um, managing. And but, but but if you want us to hook, you can hook us up with those guys if you like, because we do run a podcast, Norman, and uh, we we would love to to help in any way we can. And I can't wait to be the first person to hear it. Okay, I'm very grateful for your um, invitation and your generosity, and have a good night. Thanks, Norman. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to the New Flesh Podcast. If you like our work, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or even writing us a review. It really does help the show reach a wider audience. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, long live the New Flesh.